Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has born, been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he went, uh, he sent them from Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, give me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and joining in, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed on their, uh, to their own country by another way. Let's pray this morning. Our great God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we come into your presence today and we want to uh, marvel at you and your word and we ask that you would speak to us uh, from your word. We ask that the Son would be glorified. We ask that the Holy Spirit uh, would be present. Uh, we just ask these things to our triune God. Amen. I don't know if you remember what it was like if you, you have had or had uh, have now little children uh, in your house. I don't know if you can think back to that time, uh, but sometimes traveling with little kids uh, can be a nightmare, particularly in the holiday season. Traveling with little kids can just be really, really hard. You've got to get not only all of the presents into the car, uh, you've got to get the children all bundled up. You've got to get them all uh, if they're little, they've got to get in their baskets and wrapped up. And if they're a little older, they've got to get all their coats on. And, and, and sometimes you've got to make sure they have enough toys for the car ride. And do you have plenty of uh, DVDs for the van? And what are you going to do when they get bored? And do they have coloring books? And, and, and by the time you get to where you're going, you are just done. Uh, you're just spent. Traveling in the holidays can sometimes be the thing that makes you like the holidays the least. Some don't even like holidays. Uh, we used to want the family, hey, why don't you come to us this year so we don't have to pack up the little kids and go in, in the car. The wise men didn't travel with little kids. But you can imagine how difficult and, and how much of a labor the journey was. There weren't three wise men. There were a group of them. And they would have had to bring with them supplies and, and provisions. And they probably traveled by camel, although maybe they had donkeys or some kind of a caravan. And, and this was not just six hours in the car or eight hours or one overnight. This would have been traveling for a number of days, perhaps a week, 
perhaps longer, coming from somewhere maybe in the area of Babylon or maybe even further east in in Persia, what's modern-day Iran, maybe even somewhere from the north of ancient Persia. It would have been hard roads. They would have probably had to have some weapons, some swords or something with them, be a, a large enough group, maybe even travel with other groups of traders so they wouldn't be ambushed not knowing what's ahead of them, going to a country where they've never been, trying to find a person that all they know about him is they've seen a star. If you don't like traveling in holidays, imagine what it was like traveling for them on the holiday. Of course, it wasn't a holiday yet at at that point. But they did it because they had seen the star of the Lord and for whatever reason, the Lord God had been working in their hearts that they recognized that there was something going on and they needed to go and see this one who was the true king. And they come and they worship him. They, they bring gifts, they bow down before him, and they worship. And that's our main point this morning. Come and worship Jesus. And even as you think about what you're doing this Christmas with your family, and maybe you're even making traveling plans, and maybe you're even dreading packing up the little kids, or maybe your kids are older and you're thanking God that you don't have to pack little kids and they can pack themselves as you travel. Whatever you're doing this Christmas, don't lose sight of the Lord Jesus. Don't get so wrapped up in all of the good and wonderful celebrations that we forget why we do this. And we forget that we're worshiping Jesus. Be sure that in this season, but in every season of your life, you are coming before the Lord Jesus to worship Him. Come and worship Jesus. First this morning, if you've heard of Jesus, you must worship Him. If you've heard that He is Lord, the the responsibility to you is to, to bow before Him now. It is the right and and proper response, just as if we saw the President of the United States come into our midst today, we would show him the deference that is due the rank that he has. Even even in America, we, we honor the office, even if we're not particularly thrilled in various times with the one that's in the office. We respect the authority. We respect that God has given this person Uh, this position, because God controls and ordains all things. How much more, when we hear who Jesus is, when we see who He is, the Son of God who came and died and rose again, we have a responsibility to worship. The great hope of Scripture is that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus is Lord. So we have here in our passage magi that come from the east to worship Jesus. Magi come from the east to worship Jesus. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, wise men or, or magi would have been priest-like figures who, who studied the stars, who were into astrology a little bit. Uh, they would have been learned men 
But they also, there would have been a little bit of mysticism behind them in, in interpreting signs and various stars symbolized various things. The, the planet Jupiter, for example, often symbolizing a royal figure. Various constellations symbolizing certain things. And so as these constellations moved around, they would see them as signs from God and, and indications of what are, is going to happen. There's a, there's a bit of, of irony here, I think, in this passage. The pagans, the guys who are interpreting the stars, which is not a practice condoned by Scripture, by the way. We're not to go out to the astrologers and say, well, you guys are just like the Magi, right? No. But there's irony here in that the pagans, the ones we least expect to be looking for the Messiah, find out the Messiah has been born. And they travel for days and many hundreds, maybe thousands of miles to come and see this one. And they get to Jerusalem and nobody in Jerusalem knows anything about the Messiah. And they're worried And they're scared, and Herod feels threatened. The people that are Jewish, that are in Jerusalem, that that should be anticipating this, that have the Word of God and, and know what to look for, those individuals could almost care less. Many scholars and commentators ask the question, and maybe you've asked this question, uh, what was the star? Well, I don't entirely know. Um, It could have been a bright comet that was shining and moving through the the heavens at at the time. That would, you know, we think of a star and we think of a burning ball of gas, but a star in in the ancient world would have been anything that was lighting up the sky at night. So it could have been, uh, it could have been a comet, although we don't know of any that would have been passing through. It could have been, uh, we do know in, in around 7 or 6 B.C., uh, there was a coming together of, of Jupiter and Saturn, uh, the two planets moving together in the constellation and passing through Pisces. And one of the commentators suggests that since uh, Jupiter was a royal planet and Saturn typically symbolized the, the west lands or lands in the west, and Pisces often represented something like the last days, there could have been a, a messianic expectation or a king being born in the west out of this. Uh, Johannes Kepler suggested it was a supernova uh, or maybe just a regular nova that was, that was burning very bright. Uh, uh, that would have been you know, something God did miraculously, causing a star to explode where some star that you'd never seen before suddenly appears there. Uh, according to one source, we do know from Chinese astronomers around this time for 70 days uh, in, in around four, 5 or 4 B.C., which is about when Christ was born, there was uh, some kind of bright... Uh, supernova that was visible in the sky. It could be something miraculous from God that we just don't know what he did. That, that there's no reason to, to explain this or no way to explain this from the creation. That God did something supernatural. The point, however, although there's possible explanations and it's good to, to think about those things and ponder how God might have worked, the point is the Magi understood who Jesus was. They came to Bethlehem and they came first to Jerusalem looking for the King of the Jews. They were looking for someone special, an almighty king. And Herod and the Jews were not looking for this. Even though they had all of Scripture. I shouldn't say all the Jews. There were others that were 
we're looking at various times and expecting them to be fulfilled. But in this passage, the bulk of the people are going on with their daily lives not caring. It's interesting in this passage, there's some echoes here of the, the Old Testament. And what, it, what I mean by echoes, I mean themes that we see elsewhere in Scripture that are kind of picked up on. Maybe indirect allusions. Matthew and Luke in the Gospels, they often do this. They, they, they very clearly connect what Jesus is doing to the Old Testament many times by, by quoting Scripture directly. But oftentimes, like a, like a good literary writer will allude to something. They often allude to Scripture. If I started a story and said in a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, some of you would know what that is an allusion to. If we're saturated in the Scripture, sometimes we see these things and we say, that, that sounds like a subtle echo, an allusion. We have some of that. It's, it's interesting that in the book of Numbers, we have the, the sorcerer Balaam, who comes uh, from, it says, which he comes from the land near the river, which would be the Euphrates. It would be from the east. Uh, he would have been something like a magi, a pagan priest, if you will. And in his prophecy, in Numbers 24, verse 7, this is a pagan guy prophesying because that he'd been hired to curse God's people, and God wouldn't let him do it. So he ends up prophesying. He says, I see him, but not now, and I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This is not a reference to a literal star, but a, a, a way of talking about the king, the king being like a reigning star. A, a scepter rising out of Israel. This is a prophecy of, of the Messiah in the book of Numbers. And it's interesting that a guy from the east prophesies that a star, a king, a Messiah, a great ruler will come. And then there's magi from the east, probably a little further from the east than Balaam was, but from the east who come following the star. In the Old Testament, we have passages that describe kings from various nations coming to bow down before the Messiah. Now, the Magi aren't kings, but they are leaders and, and men of prominence, people that would have been well-respected and, and rich and high in society. Psalm 72, 10 and 11 says this, May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. In Isaiah 60, verse 14, when God restores his people, it says, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So here we have people from Persia or Babylon, kingly like figures, royal figures, people of prominence, they are coming and they are bowing down to the king. They are from lands in the east, places where the people of Israel had previously been in captivity, in affliction. God is fulfilling His Word. God is doing subtle things. And I think Matthew is alluding to some of these things. Jesus is the king. And we know this now even more so than they knew it then. 
We see him as the king, not as a little baby, but the one who died and rose again and now has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of his father. His sitting up in heaven on the royal throne in a resurrected human body representing you and I. This is the great fulfillment of Scripture. And if the, if the Magi could come and worship this one who's this, this little baby, how much more do you and I need to come and worship the Lord Jesus who now has been exalted over all of His creation? You could kind of, I think, in a way, forgive people that didn't worship Jesus at that moment. He's just a little baby. How do you know he's going to be a king? You could forgive them for saying, well, let's wait and see if God really does fulfill Scripture through this Jesus God character, this little, this little baby. But now, we see him who's been crucified, resurrected, exalted to the right hand of the Father. How much greater is our responsibility? Psalm 2 says this, God speaks and He says, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. Not talking about the earthly Zion, but talking about heaven. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. This is the Son speaking. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your your heritage the ends of the earth, your possession. Psalm 2.12 Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in His way, for His wrath is, is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who give, take refuge in Him. You know how you, you go, uh, even in our day and age, you go before someone who's important. Maybe you go to a really highfalutin party uh, where there's really rich people there and, and they may hold out the hand to kiss, kiss the ring. Or perhaps if you were to go before the, the Queen of, of England, you would show deference and, and respect, particularly if you're a loyal subject of the crown. I, I know we're Americans, but, but if you're from, from Canada or, or England, you're going you're gonna to give a little bow. You're going to I, I don't know if they kiss the ring, but you're going you're gonna to show some homage to this, this royal figure. Not because she's a god, but because you honor the position. Uh, we know from our own founding in our own country, when, when uh, George Washington was president, uh, they, they debated what should they call him. And I think somebody even threw out the idea that they, he should be called Your Excellency. And Washington, being a very humble man, just stuck with the title Mr. President. And it's been carried down through to this age. But the idea is people in power that God has put in place deserve uh, some due deference. How much more the Son of God who shares in the divine glory, who is now seated in royalty at the right hand of the Father inside the throne of glory that radiates the power and presence of God. Kiss the Son. Do homage. Bow down before Him. Bend your knee. What do we celebrate at Christmas? We are celebrating a birthday. 
And we put up cute little manger scenes. But Jesus isn't a baby anymore. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords dwelling in glory. And as much as the the wise men, the magi, come and worship the future king, we worship the one who is as king seated on the throne. All things are under His feet, Scripture says, yet we do not yet see all things under His feet, but we see Him who was crucified, crowned with glory and honor. That's what it means to be a Christian. We we come before the Lord Jesus and we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We hear the words, Jesus reigns, and we accept it and we say, Amen. We ask for forgiveness of sins, And we bend the knee and worship. What do you worship during the Christmas season? Do you get so caught up in the giving of presents that you unintentionally maybe even lose sight of worshiping Jesus? Second, this morning, don't merely pretend that you want to worship Jesus. So, we go through now with Herod in verses 2 and 3. We see that Herod is in trouble Uh, is troubled, excuse me, so he asks where the Messiah is to be born. When Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod obviously did not know his Bible very well. He never went to to Sunday school as a little kid or, or something like that. So he brings them all in. He says, okay, guys, where's the king of Judah? Where's the king of Israel? Where is the Messiah That's what Christ means, Messiah. It's the title that Jesus bears out. It means the anointed one out of these Old Testament prophecies. Where is he going to be born? And then they say, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And they quote Micah 5.2. They told him in Bethlehem of Judah, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you shall... For from you shall come a ruler who shall be who will shepherd his people yeah, who will shepherd my people Israel. I'm all tongue tied here. Sorry about that. Here's a here's a pop quiz for you. Uh, who who uh, where was Boaz from in the scripture reading this morning? Bethlehem. Did did you did you pick up on that? The, one of the reasons we're reading Ruth for the scripture reading during this season is is Ruth is one, of, is, is one of the great-grandmothers of David. And that means she's a great, 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 and however many greats there is, grandmother of Jesus. Ruth, this pagan woman, this woman outside of the covenant, who at one time was bowing down before idols, who just happens to marry a good Jewish boy, whose then husband, her husband dies, and she just happens to go back to Jerusalem or excuse me, to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, ends up marrying Boaz, and ends up being in the line of Christ. Think about that for a minute. Think about God's love for the entire world, that he would use a Ruth, a pagan, a worshiper of idols who comes to know the living God. Bethlehem is prophesied as the birthplace of Messiah. David was born in Bethlehem as well. But in Micah 5, chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, O you, but you, O Bethlehem, 
uh, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. For you shall come forth for me, one who is, who is born uh, to be the ruler in Israel, whose, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of his Lord, and they shall dwell securely. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. There's this picture of Israel, Judah, will go out from the land and be in exile. She'll go into Babylon. She'll be in Persia. She'll be scattered among the nations. But God will send his Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, it will be a reminder that God loves his people. And he is drawing them back from the nations. And they will dwell securely. And the Messiah will be great to the ends of the earth. This prophecy was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Do you think somebody in 1300 A.D. could have prophesied that America would exist and what that would look like? I I shouldn't say prophesied because that implies the the hand of the Lord. But, But could someone just randomly predict these things? Can you say 700 years in advance there's going to be this guy, Trump, from this place, New York City, and he's going to, he's going to come and, and be the president? You couldn't have even predicted that in the beginning of 2015, let alone uh, 13, 700 years ago. It's a reminder that this is the hand of God laying out these prophecies, telling us what is going to happen, and then carrying it through, it gives you and I a sense of God is reliable. God does what He says He's going to do. God tells the end from the beginning and then carries it out. Everything that God says He will do in Scripture, He will do. And one day, He will come again and judge the earth and establish His kingdom throughout all the earth and then create a new heavens and a new earth. Just as surely as as he did it in Jesus, predicted it and carried it out, he will do it again. But notice here, Herod pretends to want to worship Jesus. Verses 7 and 8. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he's already plotting and scheming. When, when was this child born? When did you start seeing this, this star? And then he says, he says, He sent them from Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. You you have to read this like a a snake with a a slivering tongue. Oh, wouldn't it be so great to just just come back and tell me, guys. It would be awesome if I could meet the king of the Jews. Here's Herod, this king who has power. He's called Herod the Great. He doesn't like threaten, threatening his power. He doesn't like when it's threatened. He was known to be a, a brutal man, even in the accounts we have outside of the Gospels. The, the story that we have that we'll look at next week, the account in the Gospels, that's, that's minor, actually, compared to some of the brutal things that, that, that Herod did. And so you can 
you can see him with this forked tongue being like, oh, I, I just want to worship. You guys are so great, man. When you find him and worship him, I want to come and join you. I mean, it's a bald-faced lie. Now, now, as far as we know, the Magi uh, don't suspect anything at this point. How could they? They're from out of town. You would expect, well, if we show up in Jerusalem, wouldn't the people be looking for their Messiah? Uh, if you showed up at, at uh, the, the Tower of London or at the Queen's Royal Palace around the time one of her great-grandchildren is born and said, where are your grandkids born? Um, assuming you're able to have an audience with the queen, maybe you're someone of some importance, she would know right away, and she'd be delighted that you're there, and you would expect her to to want to come with you and, and show her grandchildren to you. Or, or maybe she'd say, you know, I have a, a few royal things I need to do first, but you go on ahead and let me know when you get there, and I'll come and join you. You you can see why this is, is a believable deception. But it is a deception. The fact that Herod summons them in secret, I, I think there's, there's a, a, he's covering for himself. Perhaps other people know what Herod would do or suspect what Herod would do, so he, he talks to these people in private. Or perhaps he's covering himself for, for when he expects the wise men to come back and he, and he kills the the, 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 the Messiah, as he's, he's obviously planning here already, perhaps he, he wants to cover himself and say, well, it's not like I asked them where the Messiah was going to be. You know, it's not like I intended this from the beginning. Oh, what a shame that the kid died. Uh, don't look at me, guys. He's, he's hiding it already. He's, he's a plotter and a schemer. God's not fooled by Herod's behavior. God's not fooled by someone who fakes worship of Him or of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are times where we need to examine our own hearts and be reminded that the Lord knows our hearts. He's not fooled. He knows what you hide in your heart. He knows things that you can't keep hidden. Maybe some of us are here today and, and we come out uh, just sort of faking worship. Maybe we come with sort of a, a half-hearted spirit. Maybe it's just a thing that's going on in your life today and, and, and you need to just confess that because the Lord knows. He knows that you're, that you're not here in, in, in your entirety. You're not focused on being here and you're, you're not really desiring to worship Him this morning. Maybe our motives are mixed. Maybe you're here trying to impress someone. Maybe you're here for, for accolades. You want people to think that you're godly. Well, look, they're in church every Sunday. Maybe you're kind of like the Pharisees who would go to the temple and, and worship in a way of, of racking up points before God. Maybe you're even faking being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I don't know. And I'm hoping none of you here fall into that category. But if you are, if you're going through something that's distracting you from your worship, I invite you to, to come before the Lord Jesus and, and get right with God. Maybe it's just a habitual sin that's keeping you from fellowshipping fully with Him. That's, that's taken root in your heart and is disturbing your, your sense of worship and peace before God. 
come and confess those sins. The scriptures say if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not outside the realm of possibility of having someone in church who has pretended their entire lives to be a believer and has never received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You've walked through all the motions. You can give all of the Sunday school answers to the questions, but you don't believe it in your heart. First off, you may be fooling us, but you're not fooling God. Second, come before Jesus and worship Him. See Him for who He really is. This isn't a game. This isn't just a a little baby that we play Gucci-Gucci with. This is the Son of God who is now reigning over all things. Come and believe in in the Lord Jesus Christ and ask Him to to revive your heart. Worship Him in, in spirit and in truth. Spirit meaning the Holy Spirit inside of you enlivening your worship in truth, meaning you say it with a clear conscience. You really believe this, but also in truth in the sense that we are saying true things about Jesus when we worship. But worship Him. And don't play the part of a Herod. Third, this morning, when we worship, worship Jesus with our best. Worship Jesus with our best. Notice here how the star guides them again. Verses 9 and 10. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, uh, when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So I don't know entirely what happened here. We don't know entirely what happened, but they went into Jerusalem Perhaps they, they arrived at Jerusalem at the time it was morning, so the stars started going away. You know, the sun is, is coming up. And maybe this asking King Herod happens all within the span of the day. A day. I, I don't entirely know. Maybe there were some clouds or something that obscured uh, the star at night even that, that, that kept them in Jerusalem for a few days. But whatever happens, however long they were there, as they're heading out, they see the star again at even though they know they're going to Bethlehem because they've been told where the Messiah is being born, the star continues to guide them, and they're excited about that. It's kind of like confirmation, like, yeah, we're really supposed to go here. Uh, Somehow, as they're heading, the the star is is moving through the sky, and and as they're heading, it is in a position where, where physically it looks like it's hanging over Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a straight shot right, so to speak, under where the star is. And there are some ways that, that, that this could happen if it was a star just with the movement patterns and, and, and all of those things, and we won't go into that. But they begin by rejoicing. It says they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. This is like coming to the end of your, your road trip. You know how when you're traveling again during the holidays and you you get on that last road to, to the, the, the family. And you know how your kids the entire way have been saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, an hour into a, an eight-hour drive and they've asked you ten times how, how close you are. And finally you get onto that last road and you're finally saying, we are almost there now. You, now you can ask the question, are we there yet? And there's just, there's just excitement. There's just... 
we're going to celebrate Christmas. We're going to get in and open up the presents. You can imagine that feeling. And you can imagine how much more the wise men, this joy after being weeks, dusty traveling, probably by now, maybe even having some stale bread in their sacks. We're going to see this one who we've come to see. And they worship bringing treasures. It says in verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They worshipped him. I don't know how much about who Christ was they understood. Did they fully understand that He was the Son of God in the flesh? Maybe not. They might have been here, you know how like a new believer uh, doesn't understand the Trinity, but they just go, Jesus is Lord and He is awesome and we worship Him. Maybe they were like that. But whatever they were doing, however much they knew and understood, it was genuine, heartfelt worship. They knew they were bowing down before a king, but they didn't just bow down before him as a man. They were worshiping him. What is described here is things that in Scripture should only be described as being done before God. Whether they understood all of the implications of that, I don't know. But they knew they were worshiping Him. And they knew He was great. And they delighted to be in His presence. They didn't come before Him and say, well, perhaps you've heard of us. We're, we're the Magi. And we've brought some gifts. And, and then expect Mary and, and Joseph to show them some respect and some honor because they're rich men. They they came into wherever it was that Mary and Joseph were staying. They probably weren't in the stable anymore. This is probably a time later than that. And they fall down. These regal figures, perhaps dressed in their best purple cloth. And they have no qualms about getting on their knees before Him. Great people know when they're in the presence of greater greatness. Do you know when you're in the presence of the Lord and do you respond appropriately? There are times where it's good in prayer or in private worship or even in public worship to to get down on your knees or, or to raise your hands or to bow your head to do something that that recognizes the greatness of the Lord Jesus. to to shout an amen, whatever it might be. We need to be humble people who recognize the greatness of the Lord Jesus. We need to worship Jesus. Our singing, our songs, the melodies that we make, the things that, that hum through our heads. You know, it's fine to have Christmas songs stuck in your head. It's fine to have silly cartoon songs stuck in your head to sing them. Just the good, hearty, laughing songs. But do you also worship Jesus? Do you sing to Jesus? Do you bow down before Him and and give Him praise? This is an interesting bit of of church history. Last week, you might remember, I I read a a section from a guy named Athanasius. Athanasius was the guy who put his life on the line to defend 
that Jesus Christ is truly God. At one point, there was a saying that, that it was Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. Almost like he was the Elijah, the, the only guy left. He wasn't literally the only guy, but he was one of the few. And, and it seemed like he was the only guy left standing up for the truth that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And these debates and, and, and back and forth and church councils, they got deep and technical. And, and at one point, the line between describing the truth that Jesus is the eternal Son of God and, and describing Him differently, that He was a created being where He was like God but not truly God, believe it or not, came down to one letter difference in the argument. The letter we are on Sesame Street. This church heresy is brought to you by the letter I. They, they added it to the word, but it completely changed the meaning. And most of us would be like, what, what difference does an I make? And most people in the church at that time were, would have been, okay, it's an I. Can't we just move on from the debate? But the reality is, one of the things that saved the church is that people in the pew, so to speak, knew that they sang worship songs to Jesus. And they might not have understood all of the technical arguments, but they knew they worshiped Jesus, and you can only worship God, therefore Jesus must be God. And if you're saying over here that we can add this I, and He's only like God, then that is out of line with everything that we've been taught. We worship Him. I'm not making this up, actually. Mark Knoll, who's a renowned historian, says it this way. He describes some of this conflict in his book, Turning Points. He says, Hymns in the early church regularly praised Jesus as Savior, who, as from God and, and of God, restored fallen humanity to God. In short, the day-to-day life of the church, the common sense, as he puts it, of the ordinary believer rebelled against Arius's proposals. Arius's proposals. Arius was the heretic that was saying Jesus was just a created being, not truly God. Mark Knoll goes on and says, ordinary believers did not usually possess the technical skills to counter Arius's arguments. And, And that's not a put down. That's just, that's just, you know, most people in the church at that time were blue collar. Uh, even today, you know, like how many of you have studied technical Latin? And, and, and nope. Really? What kind of bad Christian? No. You, you see what I mean? It's it just we all have different gifts and talents. Anyways, as he goes on, he says, uh, as wor- ordinary believers did not usually possess the technical skill to counter Arius' arguments. As worshiping beings, however... They knew that to take divinity from Christ was to take away hope from their souls. They knew Jesus was God because they had been worshiping Him. And they knew that in that worship, if you take that away, they had no more hope. Worship in the life of the church matters. I can preach, and the preaching of the Word of God is very important, so don't take this for a second as minimizing that. But I can preach until I'm blue in the face. 
till you are all falling asleep because it is closing in on 5 o'clock at night. Don't worry, I won't let the sermon go that long today. But someone can come with a cute little worship song and it can get stuck in your head for good or for bad in the way a sermon won't. I don't take this as an insult, but but most of you will not remember all that I said today. That's just the way the human mind works. It's just the way we are. But, but you know you've been fed, just like you don't remember what you ate last week, but you know you ate good. But a song, a song can work its way in and be like an earworm. It just gets in there. How we worship Jesus what we say in our worship singing, how we act and respond physically and emotionally in worship matters. It matters. One, because Jesus is truly God. He deserves all of our worship. There's a lot of Old Testament passages that we could go through here talking about worshiping God. There's some interesting background passages here to to how they bring their, their frankincense and their myrrh, but they, they bring gifts in this worship. Uh, a couple passages from Isaiah talk about the nations bringing in gold and frankincense. Uh, myrrh, uh, some have said myrrh is, is a reminder that Jesus is going to die because in John 19 uh, they use myrrh to put on, on the body. I think myrrh here is just a cosmetic. It's a, it's a spice. It's not... It, it could be used for good things. When they, when they prepared Esther and all the, the consorts of, uh, that were going to see the king in the book of Esther, they, they soaked him in, in a baths of oil, uh, excuse me, oil baths of myrrh for six months. You know how you ladies go through your beauty regiments? Uh, you got nothing on Esther and, and all that they put those ladies through. Six months in, in myrrh oil. This is, this is royal stuff. This is rich stuff that they bring uh, before Jesus. Uh, it describes in Psalm 45 the, the king, the future Messiah, that his robes, quote, are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and, and cassia, which, which I don't know what it is, but it sounds rich. <laughs> it's amazing. And they're bringing this to, to tell us with all of these echoes again from the Old Testament, this really is the Messiah. Look at the, the foreigners coming and look at them bringing their riches to him just like God said. And they worship Him with their best. And then they're warned by a dream not to go back. Verse 12, not to go and see Herod. And being warned in the dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let me make two applications this morning. First, in your worship, bring reverence before the Lord Jesus. Take worship serious. Worship is not a game. I hope that you delight in worship. I hope that as we, we go into worship, you, we want to feel things in our heart, right? We're worshiping God. But the point of worship is not what I get out of it, but that I give worship to God. Worship is not entertainment. We are bringing ourselves before God and acknowledging His glory. That should delight us. But quite frankly, God could care less if we are delighted. 
God wants us to be delighted in Him. But God isn't telling us to worship Him because it's about us. God is telling us to worship Him because it's about Him. He is the highest and most glorious of all things. It would be wrong not to come before Him and acknowledge His greatness and His glory and delight in Him. It is wrong to not... It is wrong to come before Jesus and not acknowledge His greatness and worship Him as having the same glory as the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equal in glory and power and might and majesty, and we ascribe that to them in worship. Jeremy Camp has this song, worship, You Are Worthy of Praise, and it goes, part of it goes like this, I will worship you with all my heart, I will praise you with all of my strength. I will seek you all of my days. I will follow follow you all of your ways. Chorus says, I will give you all my worship. I will give you all my praise. You alone I long to worship. You alone are worthy of my praise. You are worthy of my praise. And then the next verse, I will bow down and hail you as king. I will serve you, and I will give you everything. I will lift up my eyes to your throne. I will trust you. I will trust you alone. Second application. Consider how we might bring before Jesus our best, or even what is costly. And there's a number of different ways you can apply this, but I'm just going to ask some questions. It may be in your offerings and your giving. Do you give to the Lord the first fruits? It may be in, in how you use your time. Do you give to the Lord first priority? It may be in your heart. Does the sincerity of my worship reflect the magnitude of who Jesus is? Does my joy in worship direct itself at the wonder and the awesomeness of Jesus. Let's pray. Our great and mighty Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we worship you. We worship the Father. We worship the Son. We worship the Holy Spirit. But right now in this moment, Lord, we are praising you, the King of Kings, who died on the cross. Well, first, who was born in the manger, who lived the earthly life, who was perfect in all ways, being without sin, and then died on the cross, rose again from the dead, having exhausted the curse that was against our sins, paying in entirety for our sins, rose again, and on the 40th day, ascended back up into heaven, crowned with glory and honor, and now sitting at the right hand of your Father, being equal in power and glory and majesty, to the Father, but also being a son, an eternal son to Him. We marvel at this great mystery of the Trinity, and yet, Lord, this, this drives and fuels our worship because this is who You are. And I pray that this Christmas we would remember what Jesus has done and we would worship Jesus and we would remember that we come before the throne of grace, before the Father's throne, because Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, who dies for us and lives now 
can be our mediator. Oh, we bless your name.